The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Like double dog dare ya! Was that wrong? You ought to be ashamed of yourself. How the hell is that Mike Florio's job? So what, no f***ing you now? It's a Friday edition of PFTPM from the barn. And it's a special edition because for the first time ever, we have an interview that we did in the barn. I just wrapped that up. We're going to play that for you coming up. That is with Minnesota safety Antoine Winfield Jr. Had an interview from yesterday as well with Alabama defensive tackle Raekwon Davis. I'll have both of those for you today coming up in a little bit. Then I'll answer some of your questions. So, when we put this all together, this one could be a little bit longer than it's been recently, but that's okay. You've been clamoring for more PFTPM. You're going to get some today. Now, before we get to any of the interviews, I was looking for something I could talk about just to get the ball rolling, and I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be because there's really not any big story happening on a Friday afternoon, no news dump that anyone has selected to drop into the mainstream cycle on a Friday. And then I saw that it's happened again. The pre-draft tradition unlike any other. Yes, someone has begun leaking the Wonderlick scores. And in recent years, it's been Bob McGinn, used to be with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, then he tried to do his own thing. And as many people have found the hard way, when you try to do your own thing, sometimes your own thing doesn't work. Now he's with The Athletic. And he continues to get Wonderlick scores, and he continues to publish Wonderlick scores years after we stopped doing it. One of the reasons I stopped doing it is First of all, and I think part of it is, as my son got older, I really started to, and I never know whether it's empathize or sympathize, I started to something aside with the guys who were in the draft class, and you realize as your son is about that age, and, and you, you realize what kids that age go through, and, and it, it's like, does it even matter? Does the Wonderlick score mean a damn thing? Yes, it's clickbait, and yes, there are media businesses out there that rely upon that kind of stuff, but we got out of the business completely, and I'm not even going to rattle off any of the numbers. I'm not even going to say what position group it is, if I haven't already, and I may have, but we made the strategic decision to not traffic in that stuff because it isn't relevant, because guys aren't necessarily prepared for the Wonderlick test. Guys don't sometimes even know that there's a Wonderlick test, and it's something that is dramatically influenced by who their agent is. The late Gary Richard had copies of the Wonderlick test that he got from his sources in the NFL, and he gave them to his clients, and they would get dramatically better because a lot of times you'll have a guy take a practice Wonderlick test and at the pro day workout that is being held the year before he's eligible for the draft, and then the next year they take the Wonderlick at the combine, and you see a dramatic increase. And one of the explanations for a dramatic increase is he's gotten his hands on one of the six copies of the test. Now, when that all came out, a scout told me, hey, if you're smart enough to remember what the right answer is by studying six copies of the Wonderlick test, you're smart enough to study and regurgitate a playbook. So I'm fine with that. But uh, I'm not fine with the idea of putting these numbers out there because when they are low, sometimes there are many other explanations for why they're low. They embarrass kids unnecessarily. 
I learned that by doing it. I learned that by getting called out. You know what? Sometimes when you get criticized for something, you do learn from it and you adjust your behavior. And I remember going through this when I first criticized Bob McGinn for doing it and relying upon information from the anonymous scout who may have a real bias uh, when it comes to a player, putting out bad information in the hopes he drops, putting out good information in the hopes that someone drafts him and burns uh, that pick on someone that his team would never take. And I got away from all that anonymous scout opinion, got away from the Wonderlake scores. Bob McGinn's still doing it, more power to him. But you won't see an item on PFT regarding the Wonderlick scores. And as I say that, I am very concerned that one of the writers at PFT is, while I'm doing this podcast, letting me know that they're posting something on the quarterback Wonderlick scores. I hope they remember the rules without the refresher. If they didn't, uh, they will get a re-refresher very loudly and clearly from me when this podcast is over. All right, let's hear from first Minnesota safety Antoine Winfield Jr., Chris Sims, number one safety in the 2020 draft. Great kid, about a 10-minute or so conversation. Here's my discussion from earlier this afternoon with Antoine Winfield Jr. All right, joining us now, PFTPM from the barn, a guy who Chris Sims has pegged as the top safety in the 2020 draft class. He is the University of Minnesota's Antoine Winfield Jr. Hello, Antoine. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing well. It makes me feel really old to say Antoine Winfield Jr. Because it feels like your dad was just playing the other day. Yeah, it's crazy. He really just was. You know, he only retired about, what, five, six years ago? And, um, you know, it's crazy because I've been getting that a lot. Everybody's saying, like, they feel old because they either watched my dad play, uh, coached him, or uh, recruited him coming out of college. So it, it's been crazy. You know, sometimes the kid doesn't want to do the thing the dad does, doesn't think it's cool, not interested in anything dad's interested in. When did you get the football bug and decide that's what you wanted to do, even though dad did it? Yeah, at an early age. Um, you know, I've played football ever since I could walk. And um, I just remember uh, being out in the backyard, working out with my dad, doing things like that with him. And then I just remember, like, one day I'm like, I want to do this. And then um, watching his career uh, over time, I'm like, yeah, this is something that I definitely want to do uh, with my life. When did you know that you had it, right? That your dad's genes had made it through to you and you had special skills, not just like, I, I like football, I like running around with my dad, but you actually had something that would take you to the level you're at. Yeah, I would say um, playing football in uh, college is where I really felt like I could uh, do this at the next level. Um, you know, I did my high school years and then um, that transition from uh, high school to college was, wasn't that bad for me. And I knew um, once I uh, played, during college and saw like what the talent level was and things like that, I felt like I could uh, really make an impact at the next level. I saw a great video on your Twitter page of you and your dad playing when you were very, very little. How yep. old were you? And do you remember the moment when you realized if this went sideways, I can take dad if I have to? <laughs> um, in the video, I was uh, about two years old, but I feel like I could take my dad uh, when I was about a junior, senior in high school. Um, I remember one thing that we did, we raced uh, back when I was probably like 16 or 17, and I beat him in a race, and that's all you heard from that uh, conversation, you know. Uh, we're super competitive, so we compete on pretty much anything, but um, I think I could take him around my uh, junior, senior year in high school. Do you remember the look in his eyes, though, when he realized it? I remember it for me and my dad when I could just see, like, it's that, it's that primal alpha male 
you can see the look where he's surrendering. Do you remember that look? Yeah, oh, of course. You know, I got it. It's like it's <laughs> on my head. Um, yeah, I remember he just, you know, he couldn't really say too much because I beat him. So um, it was just funny just to, you know, go out there and embarrass him a little bit. How much of your tackling skills are natural because your dad has them, and how much of it is from studying guys like your dad? Yeah, um, I would say uh, it's 50-50. Um, you know, it comes naturally, but you also got to work on it. And I would say um, I worked on my tackling in practice. You know, we had a tackling circuit pretty much every day um, in practice. So I feel like it was a lot of practicing, you know, technique and form tackling, which uh, took into account of my tackling, tackling abilities. What's the best advice dad's ever given you about this game? Yeah, the best advice he's given me is just to be myself. Um, I would say that's the best thing, you know. Uh, be unique. Don't try to be like anybody else. And uh, pretty much just give it uh, everything that you have. And how hard is it to do that when you see people you want to pattern yourself after? You've got some Tyron Matthew. You've got some Antoine Winfield Sr. How do you find a way to craft your own identity when there are guys you naturally are going to want to pattern yourself after? Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to – it's not necessarily I want to be just like a specific player. It's I want to use what I think their great aspects are into my game and kind of create my own game, if that makes sense. I want to be myself, but if I see something this player is doing that I like, I want to try to include that into my game. You know, one of the things Patrick Mahomes has talked about that helped make him comfortable at the NFL level was being around it his whole life growing up, being in the clubhouse with his dad. His dad played baseball, different sport, but same idea. You're around professional athletes. You're not flustered or blown away or in awe once you get there. How much of that do you think is going to help you? Because you've really been in that same boat, and it wasn't baseball. You've been in the football locker rooms. You know what it feels like, what it smells like, what it looks like. How much do you think that's going to help you in the NFL? Yeah, I think it's going to help a lot. Um, you know, growing up, my dad played. He always had players over at the house. Uh, we would go to pretty much all the mini camps that they had in Mankato. And uh, we were always around uh, some of his teammates. So it's not going to be a big shock when I go to a team and see um, uh, all these players because I'm used to it. I grew up that way. So um, I think it's going to help a lot. Who was your favorite guy from your dad's teammates? Out uh, of my dad's teammates, I would say uh, Vinny Sapp. Vinny Sapp. We would always play the game downstairs. And um, he was just always cool. And his, also his son used to always come over with him. And I played college football with his son. We played together at Minnesota. But um, it was just cool to be able to uh, play with his son after seeing uh, my dad play with his dad. So it was just a cool experience. Hey, I've been watching a lot of your highlights, and you got some really good ball skills. How much thought did you ever give to playing offense at the college level instead of defense? <laughs> I would if I could. You know, I wanted to uh, get some little packages in there, but I um, couldn't do that. So I just stick to the defensive side. But <laughs> I wouldn't mind have played offense in college. And you look like you're an offensive player back there with number 11. How would you end up wearing number 11? Yeah, so um, I really got to choose. I either wanted number one or number 11, and um, I ended up just going with number 11. Uh, my dad was also number 11 in uh, college as well, so that's kind of also why I chose that number. Now, I, I saw when you committed to the University of Minnesota, you had offers from Missouri, Northwestern, and Purdue, but none of them Ohio State. Yeah. Did, did you, you got a little chip on your shoulder about not getting an offer from Ohio State, your dad's school? Um, you know, I grew up an Ohio State fan. You know, both my parents went there, so I was raised a Buckeye. But, um, you know, there was never really uh, any chip on my shoulder. I knew wherever I ended up going, I was going to do great things. So I was just um, looking for an opportunity to play anywhere. And, you know, I just took my shot. And I knew I was going to take advantage of 
anything that came my way. But given what you accomplished in Ohio State's conference, uh, unanimous All-American, the Big Ten defensive back of the year, do, do you at some level think, hey, the Buckeyes missed the boat. They could have had me, and uh, for whatever reason, they didn't want me, and they may regret it now. Yeah, they may have uh, regretted it, but, you know, I wouldn't change a thing. I wouldn't change a thing about coming up to Minnesota and playing uh, my years there. Hey, what, what, do you, what do you do best on the football field? What's the one thing that you can say, this is my identity, this is what I do better than anyone else who's coming out into the draft that plays safety? Yeah, I would say uh, my ability to create takeaways, and that's the most important thing, you know, playing football, being able to give that offense – uh, the ball back gives you more opportunity to win. So um, I feel like uh, my ability to create takeaways is one of my biggest aspects to my game. And how does that happen for you? Is it an instinct that happens in the moment? Is it film study that allows you to maybe get a sense of when the ball is going to be in the air and how the guy's going to throw it and how you're going to be able to break on it? How do you get to the point where that ability to generate takeaways, specifically interceptions, becomes such a good trait? Yeah, film study and practice. Um, I would say film study because you got to study your opponent. Um, you got to know who the quarterback's main targets are, uh, who's getting the ball, how are they carrying the ball, um, what, where's the quarterback looking when he's throwing, and things like that as far as film study because you got to be one step ahead of the offenses at every time. And I would say doing it in practice, you know, my goal was to create one takeaway a day. And, um, you know, the things that you do in practice, you do in a game. And so that kind of translated over to uh, game situations and where I would make uh, those big plays is because I would make them in practice. What would you say when you had that takeaway in practice? Were you a talker? Would you bark at the quarterback or whoever it was you took the ball away from? Yeah, sometimes. It depends on uh, the mood I was in. But, yeah, I would definitely <laughs> talk a little trash out there. So as the draft is approached, I saw that you have spoken with the Vikings. And this is a crazy different environment than we would have had in a normal year. You would have had visits. You would have had private workouts. Who all have you had this kind of a conversation with over the past few weeks? Yeah, um, it's been a few uh, off the top of my head. Um, uh, Chiefs, um, who else? Uh, Patriots. Um, who else? Titans, uh, Bucks. And it's been a few more. I can't think of a name off all of them, but off the top of my head, those are a few. Do you keep a little wish list of the teams that you hope draft you when the process starts next week? You know what? I don't have a preference. You know, I'm, I'm just excited to see where I end up going. No matter where I go, I'm going to be excited with whoever chooses me. Isn't it a weird situation to be in, though, where you know there's these 32 different possibilities? I mean, it's like, it's like uh, playing a lottery game or pulling a name out of a hat. You got no idea what it's going to be until it happens. I mean, you may have some idea based on who's shown interest in you, but still, mm -hmm. even then, Plenty of times a team will draft a guy that it's shown no interest in whatsoever. Exactly. You never know who could pick you up. And, um, you know, it's different because, you know, being recruited coming out of high school, you got to choose where you go. Now it's you're taking a back seat and, um, you know, you're letting these other teams choose and dictate where you go. So that's the part. It's exciting, but it's, um, it's unique. Hey, Antoine, I'm going to go there since you led the way. I get accused all the time of having a crusade against the draft because I think that guys should be able to pick where they play in the NFL, just like they get to play where they play in college. Do you think about that at all right now? Man, if I wanted to play for the Vikings, they got a needed safety. I could go play for the Vikings. I don't have to go through all this stuff. Do you wish at some level that you could pick where you go next? Um, you know, I, I don't wish. You know, I want, it, I, want, I want it to be in somebody else's hands because um, 
I feel like that's that's the uniqueness behind it. And that's like the excitement is that you don't know where you're going to end up going. And I feel like that's a big part of this, you know, process, um, especially on draft day. Like it's just a weird experience, but it, it's going to be fun. Your name's on the list of the 58 guys who will be participating in the draft from home. Set the scene for me. Who's going to be there? What are you going to be doing? You're going to have the camera on that the NFL sends you as you're waiting to be drafted. Give, me, give us an idea of what it's going to look like that night. Yeah, I'm just going to be at home uh, with my family. Uh, we're just going to be in the living room, just hanging out and watching the draft. Will you put the suit on that you would have worn to the draft, or are you just going to be casual? Yeah, I'm just going to go with a more casual look. Um, you know, since I'm at home, might as well be casual and be comfortable. So no, no suit this time. Well, Antoine, we very much look forward to seeing where you end up when the draft gets rolling next week. We wish you all the best. Congratulations on your success. It's great talking to you. Hopefully we can do this again once we know which of those 32 teams calls your name next week. For sure. Thank you very much. All right, thanks, Antoine Winfield Jr. Go to YouTube and look at some of his highlights. He is spectacular. He's got great ball skills. He's got, got great toughness and tenacity, and he's got a punt return. And I tweeted the link to the highlight of the punt return from the first game of the 2018 season. I think it was the first time he ever returned a punt at the college level. It is magnificent. It is spectacular. And, man, I've got high hopes for what he's going to do at the NFL level. Before I get to your questions, let's pivot now to Alabama defensive tackle Raekwon Davis had a conversation with him on Thursday. He ended up in his car, and it's funny. When I first got him on the phone, I heard a lawnmower, and he was walking. I thought he was cutting the grass while he was talking to me. I was kind of hoping that we'd get an interview while the guy's cutting the grass. I thought that would have been kind of neat. The next thing I knew, he was in his car. Here is my discussion from Thursday with Alabama defensive tackle Raekwon Davis in his car, and I'll answer your questions on the other side of that conversation. Raekwon, how are you, pal? I'm good. I'm doing good. How you doing? I'm doing great. And, you know, we're all dealing with this upside-down crazy world. And I think back to the scouting combine, and we saw you there in the room where we were broadcasting. We were hoping to talk to you there. The world has dramatically changed. Right when you were on the brink of pro day workouts, private workouts, visits to team facilities, how did you personally deal with everything that you thought your life was going to be over the next two months completely changing? Um, right now, it's, it's it's out of everybody's control. It's just, you know, just still just trying to just stay healthy and, um, you know, just stay, stay, stay home, stay out the way. Were you planning to spend most of your time at a training facility like in Florida or somewhere else uh, and then you just had to come uh, back to Mississippi how did that play out for you yes yes sir um I was in Cali training for the combine um after the combine I was still I was gonna go back to Cali and uh, continue training and um and they told us we all had to we had, we had to leave Cali so I just came back to Mississippi what do you do now to stay in shape when you're back home and you know, different guys have different stuff at home that they can work with, things they can do, and also you got to find the motivation when you're at home, which is always hard for me to do. How have you managed to stay in shape during this? I'm just doing cardio, you know, and um, I just go to my coach's house. He got like a gym in his basement, and I do some things there. But I just do a lot, just a lot of cardio, a lot of core work, and, um, and I just lift weights at my at my coach's house. That's it. One of the big changes in this whole process is talking to teams like this through FaceTime. And I saw part of your interview with the Cowboys with Jerry Jones and Stephen Jones, and you gave them all a good laugh 
when you mentioned that the one guy you bring with you from Alabama was Nick Saban. I thought that was great. Uh, from your perspective, well, how, how weird is it to be talking into your phone to guys like Stephen Jones and Jerry Jones who have been such a key part of the league for so many years? Um, I mean, it was crazy. I mean, I just – it was just great just to get that experience, just to talk to them, just – just to be there on the on the FaceTime with them, but, um, but yeah, we definitely had like a little fun, funny moment. And, um, it was funny because they wanted they, they asked me who I bring. I told them Coach Saban. They, <laughs> they thought it was funny. <laughs> so. Yeah, Jerry said you can't bring him. We got a coach. Did now they didn't yeah, play we this got a part coach. of it. <laughs> yeah, I I didn't see how it went from there. Did they ever push you on which player you would bring? Uh, yeah, that was that was the question. There was um. They wanted to, they wanted to know what what player, what player I would I would take you know to the NFL with me. I couldn't answer because like I I would want to take the whole team, so I had to I had to answer the question. So I just I told him Nick Saban. So you were able to get them off of it all together. They never came back around and asked you for the name of a player. Nah, <laughs> nah, they didn't. All right, so I'm asking you now. Give me the name of one guy that you would bring with you. Um. One guy, uh, uh, I bring Cedric. Cedric. Why is that? Coach Saban assistant. <laughs> Coach oh, Saban assistant. There we go. All right. All right. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> he, he, he's, he's great. He's great at what he do. And, you know, he, he motivated us on the sideline. So I bring him. Let, let me ask this from a player's perspective. Who's the biggest badass that you ever played with who was a member of the Alabama program during the entire time you were there? The, the one guy you just don't want to mess with? Nick Saban. <laughs> well, I believe that. that you know, that's, they, real. They say, that's, that's real. That's real. They, they say that he's funny. <laughs> what about him? But what have you seen that made you conclude that he's funny at times? Oh, just the thing he do like when we at practice. He, I can't, I can't say it on here, but it just, just know they funny. If we can bleep knows, it out. You can Nick say Saban, it. They, they funny. No, no, no. <laughs> I ain't said it. it on here. <laughs> no. <laughs> We're not gonna send it. We're not gonna send it to any teams. No, no he right. just, um, he just be like, he just be like, you know, bring it today, or, 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 or get your A with all day. <laughs> But he is so intense, though. I interviewed him years ago, and he's very calm up above the table, but under the table, his legs going, you know, a thousand miles an hour. And he's yeah. always got that kind of intensity to his personality. And I'm sure at some point you got on the wrong side of Nick Saban. I think everybody does at some point. Is there a time that stands out for you that you got him really upset? Uh, and uh, what what was it if if that happened that caused him to get upset? Um, he don't like he don't like talking. Like talking to the um, other side of the ball, like the uh, offense. So uh, one day, um, like I was doing a lot, like a lot of talking to like our offense, just talking trash, and he just he kick you out of practice, till you get out. <laughs> wow. He kick you out. Yeah. Was that the only time? Did you learn your lesson after just one experience like that? Uh, yeah, that was that was about it. I was young. <laughs> I was young. 
Hey, one thing I do before these interviews, I take a look at the Twitter page, and I noticed you have a pinned tweet that's over three years old. I'm going to do everything they said I wouldn't do. And, I mean, it's been there since November 23, 2016. So it seems like that's something that still motivates you today. What what causes you to, to say that? What caused you to make that kind of like your your bedrock principle that, that everyone sees when they visit your Twitter page? Uh, just I just got a lot of people like I got a lot of people to prove wrong. I got a lot of people that, that um, back then was down me to even like graduate, get through college. Uh, now we talking about NFL with me, so it's it's crazy. But uh, I just put it right there just to just to keep me motivated, just to keep my mind on it, you know. But yeah, that's that's why I was up there though. Who is it that you wanted to prove wrong the most? Oh, everybody. I mean, just everybody that had like a, a bad thought about me and just any type of way is there for them so you can see it. But why Why do you think they felt that way? What was going on? I mean, it's three and a half years ago. You've grown a lot since then. <laughs> but what was happening yeah. that was causing people to have the wrong idea and doubt you? Um, I don't know. It just, I mean, people had their own I mean, opinion about you, you know, it just, and I mean, I don't know. It just, you know, it's just something I wanted to stand out right there and so I want to look at it just to keep me motivated. So you, you've had the ability to talk to as many teams as want to talk to you. One of the rules that they put in place since they can't bring guys in, every team can talk to every prospect. They can talk to them up to three times a week for an hour at a time. Who have you heard from the most over the past month or so? Oh, man, it's, it's been a lot of teams. Um, a lot of teams like 49ers, uh, Packers, uh, Miami, Miami Dolphins, uh, Ravens, the Eagles. It's, it's been so many teams. But, who, who have you uh, heard? Uh, what did you say? Since they, can, since they can call you three times a week, is there a team that you've been hearing from over and over and over again? Not just, hey, let's have a quick conversation, but let's talk you know, on a regular basis between now and the draft. Any teams that have been in regular contact with you? Oh, yeah, like the names, the ones I just named, yeah. So it's been more than just one phone call, hi, hello, how are you? It's been regular contact with those teams. Yes, sir. Who were you you a fan of growing up, both player and team? Who's the player you looked up to and who's the team that you rooted for? Um, I didn't watch that much, like, football growing up. But when I got to uh, Alabama, my my favorite person to watch was Alan Thompson. Who's that now? Dalvin Thompson from the um, New York Jets. I mean, I, I uh, see Dodge, it, New York Jets. I see that you wear number ninety-nine. What mm-hmm. what brought you to wear number ninety-nine? What inspired you to do that? Uh, it's just been my football number since high school. Was there? I, I mean, is it just the number? Is it the number they gave you, or did you want to wear number ninety-nine because of Warren Sapp or anyone else? No, I just I wanted. <laughs> I just wanted ninety-nine. Um, when did you know in your own heart that you had what it takes to make it to the NFL? What, 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 was there a moment on the practice field, a moment in a game, just one day you woke up and you just felt different? What was it that made you believe you can do it? Oh, because I just had a high motor and I just love working. And, um, I just, I love football. So when I put all that together and I, when you got the passion for it, just, it's all, it's, it's all there right there. So, 
What's the best thing? What's the best thing Raekwon Davis does on a football field? The number one best thing. Stop the run. And and what's your what's your approach to stopping the run? What do you do? Is it all? I mean, do you have a plan for it? Is it instinctive? When you know that that ball is going to be handed off to a running back, what is it that you do that allows you to to excel at that task? Um, no, I just read my keys. Just look at my formations. Look at the, the guy I'm on. And just, I just read a lot of stuff around me. I just go off my base. I just go off that right there. Give me something that you know you're going to have to improve at to be as good as you can be in the NFL. Um, I mean, I, I do a pretty good job collapsing the pocket. It's just, uh, it's like being, being double teamed when I'm pass person, you know, trying to get around guys. Does it frustrate you when you get double teamed, or do you know that you're helping the team, even though you're not going to get the sack because they're doing everything they can to keep you away from the quarterback, that one of your other guys is more likely to get it? Do you get any relief in that? Does it make you feel good at all if someone else gets the sack, or does it piss you off that you're not the one who's getting to the quarterback? No, I just I just look at it as, like, uh, helping the team because I know if I'm getting double, I know somebody's free. And uh, I just look at it as some, like I'm doing, I'm helping. All right, so draft night's coming up next Thursday. You're going to be one of the guys who's participating from home. What's your plan? Where where are you going to be and who's going to be with you? I'll be a couple of my family members, and uh, I'm going to be in Alabama. Now, do you uh, – are you going to – are you going to – are you going to put on the suit like you'd put on for the draft itself? You got you got the clothes picked out as if you were going to be nah. there to see the commissioner in person, or are you just going to be casual? Just casual. You got all the equipment. They're sending cameras out. They're going to have everything set up. I mean, it sounds like it's going to get complicated. Do you have everything you need to, to basically plug into the NFL and, and have the camera on throughout the draft until your name's picked? Yeah, I'm going to set my camera up and stuff. Yeah, I do. Do you have a sense of what your your ceiling and your floor may be for the draft? I mean, most guys have that that idea of when that that range is going to be when they can expect their name to be called. Do you have a sense high and low when you can expect to to get a phone call? No, I don't right now. No, I don't. Um, who's the guy that you've seen during your time playing football? Uh, that you may not want to see again at the NFL level. Is there a guy out there that just really stood out to you as a guy that, you know, you just had a hard time getting past or there was a level of physicality there that you just as soon deal with other players instead of him? Is there just one name out there that's lurking in the NFL that you saw when you were playing in the SEC? No, no, sir. Are, are you the guy that they're not going to want to mess with? Is that why? Yeah, probably so. <laughs> One of your teammates, Tua Tagovailoa, has been the subject of a lot of conversation about his future. If I was an NFL team and I was asking you, what does Tua bring to the table and should I put my quarterback position in his hands, what would you say? Uh, I'd be like, yeah, he, he's, a, um, he's a leader. He's going to uplift the team uh, through situations. And, um, he's, just a, he's just a leader. Well, hey, Raekwon, I wish you all the best moving forward. I congratulate you on proving all the people wrong who were doubting you back in November of 2016, and I, I look forward to seeing what you do at the NFL level. 
Good luck moving forward. Congratulations on everything you've done, and I hope to talk to you once we know what team you're on. All right, thank you. All right, thanks to Raekwon. Thanks again to Antoine. And here we go with your questions on a Friday afternoon from the barn, PFT PM podcast. And as always, at the top of the stack, the PFT PM Posse account. What do you see happening with players and teams that have multi-year big money contracts if the cap has a huge drop due to a lack of ticket sales and revenue? Will star slash big money players have to be released to get under the cap? NFL and NFLPA agree to a one-time fix, et cetera, et cetera. I was talking to an agent about this earlier today, and the agent agrees with me that this is a potential mess. You take away the ticket revenue for a full season. I don't know what the numbers are, but it's safe to say it's a shitload of money. So you take the big pile of money that is ordinarily available to the NFL through ticket sales and TV revenue and everything else that they make money from, and you take out of that the shitload of money, to use a technical term that comes from ticket sales, you have a lot less money. You have huge shitload of money minus smaller shitload of money, and I'm going to see how many times I say shitload during this podcast. But anyway, uh, it's something about being in the barn. I'm just more comfortable down here. So what happens to the cap next year? Well, the cap is driven by the amount of money that came through the prior year. But remember this. Before the salary cap becomes finalized, it is the product of negotiation between the union and the league. And the union has to be thinking ahead to that conversation because the things the NFL may have to do this year to allow football to be played may require agreements from the NFLPA. And one of the things the NFLPA may want to agree to in advance is some sort of protection as to how far the salary cap will drop if there is no ticket revenue at all in 2019. So, you know, this is why I've been a big advocate of thinking ahead, of planning ahead, of having a specific plan for every potential outcome and brainstorming all of the issues that may come up. And it really does feel like every answer you identify leads to another series of questions. As it relates to the salary cap, the NFLPA, knowing that they're gonna have to agree to things from the league this year as they prepare for a season, the NFLPA needs to be thinking about how to leverage that into some sort of commitment, some sort of guarantee that it's not going to be chaos next year when it's time to set a salary cap and then comply with the salary cap. And from the perspective of the teams, they're probably going to want that flexibility too. Now, the teams that earn the least, they, they may not be as interested, but you know what? Next year, if you take away that ticket revenue, if you take away that suite revenue, if you take away the local revenues that that flow from the stadium, right? And the local revenues that may create disparities because one, one team is selling out every week and another team is not. You take away the ticket revenue and you may even the playing field. And I think more teams are gonna feel pinched if you do have a higher salary cap, but lower revenues because some of these revenues that the really rich teams enjoy every year, they may not be there. And so a team like the Bengals, whose, whose profit margin ends up shrinking because it's got the same salary cap that every team has, even the teams that are making a lot more money, for those teams next year, the hit to their margin is going to be more comparable to the hit to the margin of the really rich teams who are losing money because fans aren't showing up. So anyway, my point is this. Yes, the salary cap is likely going to go down, but the NFLPA needs to thinking needs to be thinking now about ways 
to ensure that there's an agreement from the league to maybe make it higher because it helps the players and make it higher for the team's perspective. Because the last thing we want next year is to have this rampant rush to cut players and squeeze players and reduce salaries to comply with the salary cap. I think the teams want to have the money to spend, but there's going to be a limit to how much they want to spend because you don't want to be operating in the red as a business concern in 2021 because your salary cap ends up being more than your total revenue for the year. But you know what? Speaking of operating in the red, this year may be the year where they're in the red because the salary cap was set on last year's revenues. And this year, the money's not going to be come, coming in the same way that it would otherwise offset the money spent on players. So the bottom line is this business situation isn't good for anybody. And there are going to be all sorts of consequences. And everybody needs to be thinking ahead about what it's going to do to next year's salary cap, because without ticket revenue, it's definitely going to be an issue. All right, next question. Another one from the PFTPM Posse account. I think the defense will dominate the NFL's 2020 season, assuming there is one, like they do at the beginning of the year, while offenses will take longer to get in sync without the offseason. Thoughts? Well, I'd have to go back and look more closely at what happened in 2011, because that's going to be the most comparable season. To this one, because in 2011, there was no offseason program due to the lockout. Training camp started early August and the teams got ready and the teams went out and played. And I have a vivid recollection of Cam Newton, number one overall pick, rookie. No real work was done from a team perspective. There was no Zoom video conference. There was no ability to get properly ensconced in the playbook. And he came out and he was great. Now, maybe he was great because it was his physical ability that was shining through when maybe teams weren't as ready from an offensive or defensive perspective as they otherwise would be. And I think about the quarterbacks who are very good at improvising on the fly, like a Patrick Mahomes, it may help him. But think about this factor. Before we assume that defenses are going to have an advantage, if there are no fans, the offense in the road game is going to have a built-in advantage because you will never have to worry about noise that forces you to go to the silent count that gives the defense of the home team that edge. When everyone is going on movement, the defense picks up that split-second advantage that otherwise goes to the offense when second, but it's a big difference. When you can get out of your stance and begin the process of bracing for the pass rush, that's gone when it's really loud and you're the road team. All of a sudden, that's no longer a factor. Places like Seattle, New Orleans, Minnesota, the, the opposing offense is going to have an edge. And we may see more yardage and more scoring in those circumstances. And also, I, I feel like, especially for home teams, you know, the defense gets lathered up. And I think the defense feeds on that crowd. I think you take the crowd out of the game and – and it becomes more surgical and it becomes more like a scrimmage and it becomes more like, you know, a seven on seven. And I just feel like that raw energy that comes from the crowd disappearing, especially for the home team's defense, that, that's going to, that's going to result in more yardage, more scoring and higher scoring games. So I'm not ready to say the defense is going to have an edge. I think if anything, I think the offense is going to have the edge. Leapers 500, which teams are going to be hurt the most by the virtual draft process? This question keeps coming up. And look, I, I just keep going back to Big Cat's theory that dysfunctional teams do dysfunctional things. And we know who the dysfunctional teams are. I don't need to name names. 
some of the helmets of the dysfunctional teams may be over my shoulder to the left or to the right. We know who the dysfunctional teams are. And to the extent that the rules are different, to the extent that this new process requires extra discipline for people who are working at home. And think about that. All of a sudden, the guys who thrive on being at the office, the guys who are away from family, the guys who are away from the temptation to do other things, take a little work break, hit the refrigerator, get a little snack, take a little rest, go outside, right? All of the things that you're used to doing when you're at home are there while you're trying to work. And you're a guy who's been so immersed in his work, he's never had to worry about those temptations when he otherwise should be working. The dysfunctional teams are more likely to have employees who are gonna give into those temptations and maybe not work as hard as they otherwise would have or could have in preparing for the draft. You know, we talked the other day about the virtual process of getting a prospect on the phone or getting him on Zoom. And when you can talk to an unlimited number of players up to three times per week, an hour at a time, that takes a lot of discipline. And some teams have that discipline and some teams don't. And I think the best teams, the hardest working teams, the most creative teams, the most organized teams, those teams aren't going to suddenly lose that quality. And at the other end of the spectrum, the teams that don't have those attributes aren't going to suddenly gain them, right? This isn't gonna be the moment of epiphany where an organization that is chronically bad all of a sudden wakes up and says, we gotta get our act together. No, you're just gonna have more examples of why you aren't one of the most competitive teams, while the teams that are the most competitive are gonna show us and remind us why. So I, I just think that the good teams are gonna find a way to do it right, and the bad teams are gonna find a way to do it wrong, and it really is that simple. Interesting question from Sando Shuffle. Did you beef with Peter King off camera after he said that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard? Now, that goes back to our conversation from PFT Live today regarding the Odell Beckham Jr. trade report that came out on Wednesday from Mark Malusis of WFAN. And Peter's argument was that he would have taken it more seriously if someone like Chris Mortensen had reported it on Wednesday. And my response to Peter, and I'm as diplomatic as I could be, I could have taken the low road. I could have said something about the 11 of 12 footballs from, uh, and maybe I did during the break, and maybe it got through to the podcast because apparently that happened. But I chose to be professional for a change. And my point was, if you are somebody who breaks news on a regular basis, if you're Chris Mortensen, Adam Schefter, Jay Glazer, Ian Rappaport, any of the national insiders, or even somebody who just covers a team, you're going to get things wrong from time to time. You're going to get burned by a source from time to time. You're going to have a source that you trust who is just factually incorrect. Either that source got something wrong or that source had an agenda and is willing to play that card and hope that that source can actually ask you for forgiveness after the fact, whatever the case may be. If you're somebody who does this for a living, and this was my point to Peter, you're going to have more scoops behind it. So you're going to be more willing to take a chance with something that may be wrong, because if you are wrong, you've got a quick chance to redeem yourself. And let me share with you an example that I picked up from Howard Stern's book of interview excerpts, Jimmy Fallon. Jimmy Fallon explained to him that he used to be far more tormented after a Saturday Night Live that didn't go the way he wanted because he had to wait a whole week for the next one. But on Tonight's show, if you screw something up, 
you got another one coming tomorrow. It's easier to get over it. So if you're a reporter and maybe you make a mistake, maybe you trust a source when you shouldn't, you can get over it quickly because you're gonna be right back on the horse reporting something else. But when you're Mark Malusis of WFAN, who to my knowledge has never reported anything that registered on the NFL's radar screen as it relates to the never ending cycle of news, name never stood out for any reason. And frankly, the only reason I recognize the name is I was on his weekend show with Maggie Gray a couple of weeks ago. Otherwise I'd have been like, who the hell is Mark Malusis, frankly. But if you're gonna be that guy and you're gonna swing that ax one time and that's what you're gonna be known for, you're gonna get it right. Or at least you're gonna be damn sure you got it right. And I continue to believe that the reason this got out was that the Vikings were talking to the Giants about Odell Beckham Jr. And that's somebody from the Giants hoping to screw it all up. I mean, think about it, if you're the Giants, if you're the Giants and you catch wind of the Vikings talking to the Browns about a trade for Odo Beckham Jr. Okay, the Browns are gonna get some sort of value for Odo Beckham Jr. Now, maybe you want the Browns to flush the Odo Beckham Jr. experiment so you look better for giving up on him last year. Or maybe, maybe you don't want Odo Beckham Jr. back in the conference. There was talk last year that the Giants took less from the Browns than they could have gotten from the 49ers because they want him out of the conference. Maybe the Giants don't want Odo Beckham Jr. on the Vikings. Maybe the Giants don't want Odell Beckham Jr. to be in a place where there's a greater chance he's going to be the kind of player that he was with the Giants. Maybe you prefer to have him with a dysfunctional team because dysfunctional teams do dysfunctional things. Whatever the case may be, I'm a firm believer that there was something to this. And I tried to explain to Peter during the show. And what he said was, after I made my case, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And look, it makes for good TV. It makes for good audio. And I ultimately said, him saying it was the dumbest thing he's ever heard is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And we had a big laugh and all that. But I believe based upon the things I heard, and I believe based upon the tentacles that I put out there to try to find out if there's anything to it, I believe there was something to it. And it's quite possible that as of Wednesday, there was something to it. And the fact it got out caused it all to disintegrate. And it's possible that there could be something to it next week. And Look, it's entirely possible that Paul DePodesta, when he had a conference call yesterday and said it's completely false, was lying through his teeth. Because newsflash, folks, these teams will, for strategic reasons, lie through their teeth. We've seen it before. We'll see it again. We have no intent to trade Percy Harden. How many times do we have to hear Jalen Ramsey isn't going to be traded? How many times did we hear last year that Odell Beckham Jr. wasn't going to be traded by the Giants? How many times do we have to be lied to before we recognize in advance that what they're telling us now could be, wait for it, a lie. So that's the point I was trying to make to Peter. And one of the fundamental disagreements Peter and I have from time to time is he tends to take things at face value more than I do. I'm more inclined to scratch the surface and say, there's a chance that's bullshit. So he can have the opinion that my theory is the dumbest thing he's ever heard. And I can have the opinion that He's taking something at face value that he shouldn't. We'll see. But even if Odell Beckham Jr. isn't traded to the Vikings, that doesn't mean there was nothing to it. And I tend to think that if Mark Malusis, unless all of a sudden he is doing a mid-career pivot from radio host to NFL newsbreaker, and he's going to have more and more and more of these tweets, unless he's decided to undergo that organic change to his NFL or sports career, this is the one thing he's gonna be remembered for. And I think it's unfortunate that we just write him off as some radio goofball 
who just got something wrong. Why in the hell would you take the chance on something like this if you think that it may be wrong? All right, moving right along. PFT sponge, a question that made me laugh when I scrolled through this earlier. And yes, I will admit, this is one of the days where I scrolled through it in advance because it's kind of different down here at the barn and I want to have it to, you know, slightly more organized. It's one thing if I'm, if I'm just doing audio, I can fumble around a little bit more because you can't see the look on my face as I'm kind of like going, what the hell am I going to say next? So I want to be slightly more organized and slightly more professional, even though I'm down here in the whiskey and cigar hangout. Anyway, I did look at some of these in advance. PFT Sponge asks, when football returns, do you think we'll see quarterbacks licking their fingers and hands? Or possibly now, all players that touch the ball will all wear gloves. Look, I think we still will see the quarterbacks licking their fingers and their hands because no one's going to be out on that field unless they've been tested before the game that they are coronavirus negative. And this is something else Peter and I were arguing about today. Because I'm a firm believer that the NFL's last-ditch scenario is going to be creating some sort of a sequestered environment where players are essentially quarantined in a hotel away from their families. Peter thinks that as he reads what Dr. Fauci said the other day, it's not at that point yet, and players will be tested once a week when they're living at home. I don't think that'll be good enough. If the players are living at home, I think that they need to be tested before they walk through the door every single day. Because all it takes is that one guy to go into the locker room positive with coronavirus. One guy. And in that locker room, you're going to have, I'm not going to say every guy, but potentially every guy. Think about a locker room. If you've ever been in one, you probably wish you hadn't. It's dirty. It's smelly. It's close quarters. Viruses spread quickly. Bacteria spreads quickly. Mold spreads quickly. Stink spreads quickly. So if you're going to let guys go home, guys who have kids, if people are back in school then, and, and who knows? Who knows what's going to happen between now and September? If you turn on the news, you'll hear every possible theory in 15 minutes. But if the world is back to normal before it should be back to normal, and kids are bringing home the coronavirus from school, and dad was tested on Sunday at the facility before the game, dad's going to have to be tested on Monday when he goes back for film study. Dad's going to have to be tested on Wednesday when he goes back for practice. He's going to have to be tested on Thursday when he goes back for practice. You're going to have to test these guys every time they show up before they walk in the door. It's not going to be enough to take their temperature because you can have the disease and have no symptoms. You can be positive with no symptoms. So that, that basic screening of taking someone's temperature doesn't mean anything if this is somebody who gets no symptoms from it. So my point is this. If we get to the point where guys are going to be playing, they will have been tested before they're playing specifically because guys are going to want to go out and just play and not think about it. They're going to lick their fingers before they throw the ball. And you're going to have virus on the ball, and the ball is going to get thrown, and the guy's going to catch it. If he's wearing gloves, it's still going to be on his gloves. It's going to be on everything he touches. If, if you catch the ball, if the quarterback licked his hand, touched the ball, threw the ball, receiver catches it, gloves on the ball, virus on the gloves, gloves on the helmet, gloves on the shirt, gloves everywhere, you're going to have the virus all over. That's, that's why it spreads through a locker room so quick. So anyway, uh, I, listen, I, I, I like the fact that there's a sense of positivity. I like the fact that they are brainstorming ways to have football season. But it does not take a lot for me to get to the point where I conclude it's going to be impractical to have a football season. Unless you sequester the players or 
we have a procedure where people can be tested every single day on the way in and maybe on the way out, right? I don't know how difficult it's gonna be. I don't know what testing procedure is gonna be available. The test that they had initially, you stick a thing up your nose and like threw back to your brain. I'd like to think it's progressed some since then. I'd like to think it would progress even more by the time we get to September, but these are very real factors that need to be kept in mind as the NFL tries to figure out what in the hell it's actually going to do. All right, let's see what we have next here. Charles wants to know, is there any actual logic behind the one helmet rule? Apparently the one helmet rule could go away in 2021. I don't understand the one helmet rule other than it kills fun. The NFL's idea that having each player wear only one helmet all year long, not one helmet model, one helmet, and only that helmet. You're not allowed to have two of the same helmet. So you can't have one that is black and you can't have one that is yellow, which is good for the Steelers because I hated that yellow helmet that they wore when you were allowed to have multiple helmets. But what it does is it takes away the throwbacks. And this all came out because a couple of weeks ago, Bruce Arians was on Dan Patrick's show and he said it like it was gospel truth that the Buccaneers will be able to wear next year the creamsicle uniforms because they can wear a white helmet to go along with the pewter helmet. And back over my shoulder somewhere there is both the white helmet, I think the white helmet's back here, and the pewter helmet's back there. But as long as the one helmet rule's in place, you can't do it. The NFL told me they haven't made a decision yet. I still don't know what the logic is when you consider that at the college level, different helmet every week for some of these teams. I don't understand where the safety component comes into play. If it's an approved helmet design, why do you have to have the same one every week? If it's the exact same helmet, why does it matter if it's not the same helmet you wore last week? If it's the same helmet, and if it's all fitted the same way, it shouldn't matter. So I don't know that there is any logic. I just think that the NFL at one point was so concerned about creating the impression that it is doing everything it can to promote player health and safety as it relates to brain health, that the NFL decided we're going to go with this one helmet and only one helmet thing because that's just another thing we can point to, to say we're doing everything we can to keep players as healthy as we possibly can. All right, next uh, question. Let's see what else we have here. J Train 33, with the teams doing a technical mock draft prior to the draft, do you think teams will use this as a smokescreen to hide their, two, their true draft boards? Look, I, I, I don't think we're going to hear any teams saying actual real names from the 2020 class. I think maybe what they should do is go back and redo last year's draft and have the teams go in the order of, of the picks they made then and they just name those names, or they send out a laundry list of fake names, maybe cartoon characters or something like that. But th th this isn't going to be a mock draft in the sense that when the Bengals are on the clock, they're going to pick Joe Burrow. I, I don't think that's what they mean by mock draft. So I don't think there's going to be any part of this. And I'll try to find out how they actually go about it. What names are they using? Because they're surely not going to use actual names from the 2020 draft class. That's something that a GM rightfully should be able to complain about if they're saying, yeah, just go ahead. Let's just go ahead and pick one of the names and, and we'll, we'll just pretend that, that it's all fake. I mean, it's, it's, it's ludicrous to even go down that path if you're the NFL. All right. A Red Zone Out, our good friend from across the Atlantic Ocean, wants to know if a trouble-free draft next week would change the process forever. I don't know that it will. I don't know. Are we going to fall in love with the stay-at-home draft? I think that it's not going to be a replacement for the excitement of having tens of thousands of people present. Now, here's the thing. Next year, 
wherever the draft is going to be. And I think they picked the location for 2021 and 2023. One's Kansas City. One is Cleveland. 2022, that may be when Las Vegas gets its crack at doing what it's not going to do this year. I think the NFL is going to have to ask itself by next April, will we be at a point where people will show up in enough numbers that it becomes a good visual? That's the only reason they're doing it. Because think back to the images from Philadelphia a few years ago, how stunning that was the first night of the draft to see 80,000 people there. It looks good on TV. That's what it's all about. That's what this all is. It's a TV show. It's a TV show that's ultimately about nothing because the whole thing could be done the way they're going to do it. It could be done by text message. It could be done by open conference call where one team picks after another. You don't need the pomp and circumstance. You don't need the pageantry. You don't need the players there. You don't need the bear hug with the commissioner. So I don't know. Let's see how it goes next week. It may not be exactly like what we see next week going forward, but there may be elements of what comes out of next week that become part of the draft as we move forward into 2021 and beyond. Let's see how it looks next week, and let's see what parts of it we decide maybe are better than what it used to be. And, hell, I already can't remember how it used to be. I've been thinking so much about how it's going to be. I forget how it used to be. It used to be a bunch of people sitting around a desk and a bunch of cameras in war rooms and a bunch of guys walking out with their suits on, hugging the commissioner or shaking hands with the commissioner or lifting them off the ground or whatnot, and uh, it is going to be very different this year. All right, let's see what else we have here. Mike likes dirt and wants to know if you could be a scout or an assistant coach for an NFL team, which role would you choose and why? Well, this one's very simple for me. I'd want to be an assistant coach. I, being a scout is a thankless job. Being a scout entails a lot of drudgery, a lot of travel, a lot of going to crappy hotels in crappy towns and chasing down information about college football players and kissing the asses of college football coaches who can be buttholes from time to time. I wouldn't want that job. You toil in anonymity, and you maybe, if you're lucky, work your way up the ranks. There's a lot of guys who spend their whole careers just grinding and grinding and grinding and on the road all the time. I don't want that. Now, assistant coaches are going to work their asses off, but they're going to be at the team facility. They get to go home at night and sleep in their beds. They get to be with their families, right? You're traveling with the team. You're with the team. And, you know, for me, and Tony Dungy and I have had these conversations. One of the things I think I would have been really good at is taking film and breaking it down and finding the clues, finding the tendencies, finding the tells, finding the little things. I've had conversations with Chris Spielman. He was on PFT Live years ago, and we talked about the things he would pick up when studying film. I think that my attention to detail is such that I would find that stuff. I would find that moment where the quarterback licks his fingers before it's a pass play. I mean, those are the most basic ones we've heard about before. But, you know, it's almost like, one of, those, one of those games, and I always love those games where you've got two pictures and five things are different between the two pictures. I always loved those when I was a kid because I could find them. I could focus in, I could find that detail, and I could see what's different. And looking at all the plays over and over and over again, it would be a challenge. Find what's different. Find what's different. Find what the common thread is. I'd, love to, I'd still love to do that now because I think I'd be good at it. But so I would have wanted to be an assistant coach because I just think from the standpoint of film study and finding those clues that let you know ahead of time what the play is going to be, that's one thing I think I would have been good at. I may have been terrible at everything else. I may have been a horrible teacher of technique. I may have been horrible at coming up with game plans. But the one thing I would have been able to do, I think, at a very high level is find the clues and the plays that teams have run in the past that would tell us in real time what to look for 
before the snap when your defense is out there, what is the offense doing that is giving us an idea of what this play is going to be? All right, let's see what else we have. On tour forever, do you think we'll see any big trades in day one or day two of the draft considering all teams have their reps at home individually? I, I don't think it's going to be any different when it comes to trades. Now, I think we could see teams that are more willing to trade up and trade other picks because let's say they've gotten to the point where there's a small handful of guys they love. There's a small handful of guys that they have to have. And they're going to do what they have to do to get those guys. And if they have to give up draft picks, if they have to give up multiple draft picks that would be used under circumstances where they don't have that same level of comfort, that they love a guy because they weren't able to work the guy up the way that they otherwise would, maybe they're willing to make that move. That's why I continue to be fascinated by the possibility of the Dolphins trading up with the Bengals. I look at so much of what's coming out as we approach the draft from both teams' perspectives as just part of the smokescreen effort to get everyone to think that the Bengals aren't budging and the Dolphins aren't budging. And it may be part of a broader dance to get the Bengals to offer more or the Dolphins to take less. And I'm looking for those clues because I think at the end of the day, Stephen Ross, the owner of the Dolphins, I mean, let's be real about this. And I've, I've addressed this earlier today on radio in Miami with Joe Rose and Zach Krantz. And I think I've talked about it elsewhere on radio this week. And it's somewhat indelicate. But as Sims would say, I'm just going to go ahead and say it. Stephen Ross is old. He's going to be 80 soon if he's not already 80. And if you've got five to seven to 10 years left where you know you're going to be in good faculties and you're going to get to enjoy the games and you're going to be functional, Right. And who knows? Maybe maybe he he's able to go past 90. But if I'm on the brink of 80, I'm not assuming I have more than 10 years of good years where I'm going to be fully engaged with my business interests. And God bless him for being almost 80 or already 80 and having the ability to be fully engaged with his business interests. But I'm going to be more inclined to give the Bengals what they want to get them to give me Joe Burrow. If, as I've heard over and over again, Stephen Ross loves Joe Burrow. And if I've seen what those draft picks I'm giving up have turned into over the course of the last 10 years or so that I've owned the team, right? We've pissed away plenty of draft picks. We've swung and missed on plenty of guys. But this is the guy I want. This is the guy I want to be the quarterback of my team for the 10 years that I have left, if I have 10, as a highly functioning individual who's able to fully appreciate the fruits of my labor. Let's get Joe Burrow. Let's do what we have to do. Let's make the Bengals an offer they can't refuse. Now, adding to the intrigue here, the fact that the Bengals are so unpredictable. Like, they don't know what's good for them. Like, will they know an offer that they can't refuse when it's staring them in the face? Or are they so dysfunctional? I'm sorry, Bengals, but I have to go there. Are they so dysfunctional, they won't know that they should take that offer? And maybe they get more that way. Maybe the Bengals will be that, that guy that, that, despite himself, just – kind of bluffs his way into a far better deal than he otherwise would have had just because he doesn't know what's good for him. That's what I'm fascinated by. And to get back to the broader point, because teams haven't had the chance to fully fall in love with the full complement of players the way they ordinarily would, if they have some guys they're sold on that they believe or can't miss, you may have that willingness to move up because who cares about the picture given up? Because when it's time to use those picks, you know, what the hell are you going to do anyway? Let's see what else we have here. I may want to end on that one. I kind of like that one. I'm trying to find one more. I'm in that mode. Let's find one more. One more. 
On Tour Forever wants to know if there are any new network or streaming shows I've really gotten into right now. You know, my wife and I have been watching Better Call Saul. Let me say this about Better Call Saul. It's gotten very good lately. I really do feel like, though, that Better Call Saul, for as well written and acted as it is, it, it, it's plotting at times. Not T, D. It just moves slowly. And I find myself every time a new season starts forgetting what had happened the prior season, even though I watched all the episodes. And like when the latest season of Better Call Saul started, I went back and watched all of the shows from the last season because I really did forget a lot of stuff. And with Breaking Bad, that never happened. With Breaking Bad, I never needed a refresher. I remembered all the storylines, all the plot lines, all the subplots. They, they resonate. And maybe that's the biggest indictment of Better Call Saul. The characters are memorable because we already knew who they were. The one lingering question is what happens to Kim? And every once in a while they make us think, is Kim gonna die, right? And now you've got this storyline. I don't wanna give away any spoilers, but the bottom line is there isn't a whole lot of guesswork because we know that Saul lives. We know that Mike lives. Now every once in a while they do the flash forward to where Saul is working at the Cinnabon and he's been outed by someone and where is that all gonna end and where it's gonna tie together. And I have a theory of what's ultimately gonna happen. I'm not going to share it now because there may be some people out there who are watching it who are behind by a few episodes. But that, that's one show we're watching, but I find myself really struggling to stay engaged. The last couple of episodes, though, I haven't had to struggle. I thought the last two episodes were very, very good, and the season finale is coming up, and maybe the last season of it, which is coming up whenever the last season is ready to go. Hopefully it's going to end with a bang, and it's going to be memorable, as memorable as Breaking Bad was. Um, other... Uh, other shows that we're watching. What are we watching? Jill and I started watching Little Fires Everywhere on Hulu. The first episode was really good. It feels like it's just kind of gradually like less and less interesting to me as it goes along. Uh, we just, I, you know, once you, when do you stop? When do you check out? I, there are shows where, and I did this with The Walking Dead. Like The Walking Dead, I thought the first season was riveting. And the second season, there were episodes where I remember having it on TiVo at the time. Was it TiVo? It was like eight, nine years ago. And I wouldn't fast forward through the commercials because I needed a break. It was so intense. I wanted to have a few minutes where I could collect myself before we went right back into it. But then I got to a point after three, four, five seasons where it's like, I really don't follow this anymore. I don't understand what's going on, and I really don't like it anymore. But I have to keep watching it because I've been watching it all along. Like, you have to do justice to the time you've already invested so you keep going. I eventually got to a point where I said, screw it, I'm done. And my guess is, based upon the numbers that The Walking Dead generates now, relative to what The Walking Dead used to generate, a lot of people have decided they've had enough. And that's unfortunate. You know, that's what Jerry Seinfeld wanted to do when his series ended. He wanted to go out on a high note. And as much as I love that series, I think he's convinced himself he went out on a high note. I don't think he did. I think that there were episodes the last season that were not good. And if you watch the series back to back to back to back to back, and I've been watching it, you can see the progression from how they find their footing to when they find their groove. Season four, the best. Season five, underrated. They were still really in that bubble. By the time they get to seven, eight, and nine, and I know at some point Larry David left, um, but you really start to sense, man, this isn't what it used to be. 
And by the time you get to the last season, yes, the last season has its moments. A lot of those episodes, man, they're not good. And the finale, I, I don't care what they were trying to do. And I know there's a small percentage of people out there that love the finale. I thought the finale was not good. And, uh, but, but he went out before he really got to the point where people were saying, why the hell are we still watching this? So he did go out on a high note. Apparently he turned down a shitload, I got it in one more time, of money to keep doing it, even though that 10th season may have been an embarrassment to the brand. The Walking Dead stayed around way too long. Other shows stay around way too long. I guess that's my point. You have to know when to shut up and move on. On that note, I'm gonna shut up and move on. We'll see you Monday for PFT Live. We'll be posting all weekend long at profootballtalk.com. We have our one and only mock draft coming. You know, I don't do 10 versions anymore because everybody's got a mock draft and nobody really knows. And I know it sets the stage for conversation. We'll have our one and only mock draft at some point before the draft begins. Although it would be a hell of a lot more accurate if I waited until after the draft started. Anyway, full draft coverage over the weekend. Next week is going to be a lot of fun. I'm going to go ahead and say this now because there may only be three of you left watching and I'm running the risk of a jinx here. But I think we're going to have Joe Burrow on Monday. And I think we're going to do it down here in the barn. Everybody enjoy your weekend. We'll see you on Monday morning for a new PFT Live, maybe Monday afternoon for a PFT PM with Joe Burrow. And either way, stories and content, analysis, rumors galore at ProFootballTalk.com. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.